Hi, everybody. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, first of all, I want to thank the committee for inviting me. It's all, and Mary, uh, thank you. It's an honor to, to talk at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. I know a couple of people use the term, I'm filling in for Charlie. That's a great term. I, I certainly can't replace Charlie. He's a wonderful member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, and I know all our prayers are with Charlie. And uh, and uh, think about Charlie throughout this conference. Uh, I uh, it's, it's, it's also an honor to be... I guess I'm supposed to say my name is Dick Hedron. I'm an alcoholic. Through God's grace, Alcoholics Anonymous and sponsorship, I've been sober since November 20th, 1983. And for that, I'm very, very grateful. It's an honor to be speaking with, with the people on the committee. Every one of them had, had, had an effect on my life. I've heard Don numerous times, and he was one of the first, uh, at least, I, I've heard at a conference. And he's a special. And I really enjoyed his presentation yesterday on service work. I think we need to hear more of that. I like the laid-back approach. Everybody thinks service work such a, you know, such a tough deal, and, and it's not. I believe in service work. You know, I believe in the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. Last week, I was uh, asked to do a, a talk on the tenth tradition. Oh, you know, and and I, I kind of researched it. You know the outside interest thing, and I look back at the Washingtonian movement. And a lot of you are new here probably never even heard of the Washingtonians, but back in 1840, it was a group of six guys got together in, in Baltimore, and they uh, they uh, wanted to get sober, and they had a lot of the same principles we do. You know, they they went to meetings. You know, they shared together. You know, they were they called on the phone. They believed in God, and a lot of the same things that that we share here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And man, this thing grew uh, in a couple of years. Uh, actually, by by. By 19 or 1843, there was, by some estimates, 600,000 people in this movement. What happened was that they started forgetting their primary purpose. They got into uh, abolition of slaves. They got into, uh, you know, all the different issues, uh, the women's women's voting rights, and and different things. You know, rather than than their primary purpose, they they wanted to bolster their attendance, so they started bringing in guest speakers that weren't even alcoholics. Abraham Lincoln was one of the speakers. You know, anyway, they lost their focus, and, and by 1948, this dynamic organization was gone totally gone within eight years. It grew much faster than Alcoholics Anonymous. And the reason was they didn't have the traditions. They didn't have anything to keep it together. And uh, I value the traditions in Alcoholics Anonymous because uh, there's no other hope for me other than Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm an alcoholic, and I don't ever want to see this thing go away. And Clancy, Clancy and I have uh, been together several times, and uh, he's a special guy. You know, he's just got a different message. Uh, my wife loves Clancy. You know, she says the lights. My wife's an Alan. She says the lights go off when she sees Clancy because he's a true alcoholic. <laughs> she has that radar, I guess. And, and Sharon, thank you for your message. Uh, uh, she's a very good friend of my sponsor, Keith Lewis, and uh, she uh, uh, and I enjoyed her message last night. Um, Mary Pearl. I don't see her here, but Mary Pearl uh, entered in my life. Uh, one of the low, I'll talk about that maybe a little bit later, but one of the lowest times in my life, she was at a conference when I was there, and she took an hour of her time to talk to me, and, and I'll never forget that. And, and that's what Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous is all about, is just helping each other. Uh, God, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love everything about this. You know, two years ago at this very conference, they decided to try something different. And rather than have a dance, they had a play. The local Al-Anons had a, had a deal called the Wisdom of Oz, and it was a, you know it was a, it was a thing on the steps, and uh, and uh, my wife was Dorothy, uh, Jennifer was a Munchkin, uh, I think uh, <laughs> Mary was a Munchkin, uh, and you know different people played different, and we had elaborate costumes, really did, and had great scenery, and they drafted me to be the alcoholic tornado. <laughs> <laughs> I was the booze swig, and I had a bottle of booze and running around, and my sole job was to tear down half the set, you know, and, 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 and chase, chase Dorothy off the Oz, you know. And, uh, and I guess I succeeded. And, uh, 
in Alcoholics Anonymous an amazing thing? Two years later, I'm here and you're speaker. <laughs> you know? uh, I guess I better tell you my story. I, I was uh, I was born a baby of eight kids. I wish I could sit here now and say my my my, pro- my family's my problem. The reason I'm an alcoholic is my family. I can't do that. I came from a wonderful Catholic family. I was a baby of eight kids, and they loved me. I had six older sisters, and they spoiled the hell out of me. And my family was one of them deals. My homestead was the homestead. People came from everywhere to be at my home because my sisters were very talented. They were Every one of them were valedictorians of their class, and just a very smart family and, and just wonderful people. They, were, they could play pianos. They sang. You know, One of them had a college scholarship for her voice. And, and people came to our home and were entertained, but I hid in the basement. Because, see, I didn't feel like I fit in. I didn't feel like I fit in. And and I did everything, you know, because I was afraid. I was just afraid. So many times, everything is so fear-based. I was afraid of everything. And you know what I did? You know, I I was afraid you weren't going to like me. I was afraid you were going to hurt me. So what I did is I acted out to get your attention so you'd like me. I remember when I was five years old. I don't remember. My brother tells this story. I was five years old. Back then, they used to cash their checks at the local bar. My brother worked at the old General Electric. It wasn't General Electric. I forget what it was called back then. But went to cash his check, and he brought me along. And they all have a drink, you know. And, uh, and he said, what do you want, Dick? And I said, oh, this shot, you know. And, and then just for a joke, they put the shot out in front of me. And boom, I plugged it down and said, give me another one, you know. And they said I didn't even bat an eye. That should have told him something, I guess, you know. Uh, when I was 11, uh, I was in the fifth grade, fourth or fifth grade, I don't know which. No, I guess I was in the fifth grade. And uh, we had a, I went to a Catholic school. And uh, the report card, the priest to go to the auditorium was a small school. And the priest would read your grades. You know, he'd say, uh, mathematics, 100, you know, reading, 100. Uh, sister, uh, you forgot Mr. Hedger's uh, uh, conduct grade. No, I didn't, Father. That is his grade. <laughs> I got a zero in conduct, and because uh, I was acting out. I remember the next uh, the next quarter, I got a fifty. My dad was at the local bar bragging on his son, increasing his grade by fifty points. You know, <laughs> he didn't tell me what the starting point was. You know, uh, so you know, at an early age, uh, I, I just had all the tendencies. I drank when I was thirteen years old. I was at a Catholic wedding. And uh, and I drank, uh, and, and I I can remember that as clear as a bell. I drank, and that that happened. That great magic happened. I mean, I dan- I couldn't dance today. I can't dance, but I danced that night, you know. And I did all the things, and I knew, I knew then that alcohol was my answer. You know, it wasn't my problem. It was my answer. It made me feel a part of. And so I drank whenever I could. And you know, back then, it's kind of tough to drink at 13, but as you got a little bit older, back in where I was from, across the river, Newport, Kentucky was called Sin City back then. And if you could find your way to a bar, you could drink, and if you had money. And I found my way. I used to ride a bicycle to this one bar. I remember on my 18th birthday, they had a big party for me. They didn't even really, you know, and it was, the age was 21 to drink. I've been drinking there for four years, you know. <laughs> and, and I drank. When I got out of high school, I was 16 years old. Uh, and I was really a smart kid. I was just a straight-A student, despite my drinking, but I had a problem with alcohol. Everybody knew it. There wasn't a girl in this little town I was from that was allowed to go out with me. I mean, I had a bad reputation. I was known as a drunk of date in Kentucky. I thought about it, and I don't think there was many guys allowed to go out with me. I mean, I had a bad reputation. And uh, I went to this Catholic priest to talk about my problem. Uh, I didn't know what it was. I knew something was wrong with me. I went there and discussed my situation, and I don't know how it happened, but it happened. I wound up in a seminary studying to be a Catholic priest. So I'm in a seminary, and uh, they let, about three months they let me out for a weekend. <laughs> I went out and chased girls like I was supposed to, you know, and got drunk like I was supposed to, and I staggered in Sunday night all drunk up, and 
The guy in charge of the seminary priest reported me to the bishop, and he looked at my records and said, this kid's a straight-A student. He must be okay. But, you know, every time they let me out of that seminary, I got drunk. And I come in Sunday night drunk. I was there 13 months. At the end of 13 months, I guess the bishop finally heard enough from his priest, and he was waiting for me to see if it was true. And it was true, you know. My dad, uh, I don't know about your dad. If my dad was a Democrat, I was a Democrat. You know, if my dad didn't like this, I'd, my dad didn't like the bishop for a lot of reasons. So I didn't particularly like the bishop. And uh, anyway, he was there. He said something. I said something. And I punched the bishop. Now, and the Catholic Church, you don't go about hitting your bishops. They're a big deal in the church. They threw me out of the seminary. Never mind that they are. Uh, might have thrown me out of the Catholic Church. I, I never really asked. Uh, I had another college scholarship uh, I finagled, and uh, uh, I took this test a year before for Xavier University, and I entered their honors course because I'm a great test taker. And I went there on a full, full academic scholarship, and at the end of the year, I made the dean's list. Well, kind of. The dean called me into his office to just point out I flunked every subject. Uh, I just laid around drunk all year long. Uh, and uh, they threw me out of Xavier University. And, you know, back then a college degree was worth a lot of money, still is today. And, and uh, it, you know, and, but I lost it. So as soon as alcohol started to take its toll, alcohol started to take things away from me. Now, I know I wasn't meant to be a priest, but, but I would have loved to have that college education back then. <clears throat> and I got a good job. I work in the General Electric, making a lot of money. Way too much money for a dumb hillbilly from Kentucky, driving around a brand new 56 Chevrolet, looking good. And, and I used to say I'd go to Newport after I got off work and close the bars up. Uh, somebody pointed out that those bars never closed, Dick. But, but I tell you, I did my best to close the bars up. And by then, I, I was past beer. I had an ungodly capacity for bourbon. I could drink a lot of bourbon for a kid. In my later years, I was drinking a quart of bourbon a day just to maintain, and, and that's a fact. In many, many days, much more than that. But back then, I had a. Everybody knew this guy can drink a lot of bourbon. And I'm at a nasty bar over in Newport, Kentucky. It's called Butters. It's a breakout bar. One of them nasty bars. It didn't have it had one good point in the whole bar. Topless blackjack dealer in the back rooms. Well, really, two good points. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, she. Uh, I'm there drunk one night, and somebody said. I bet he can chug a lug a fifth or a quart of bourbon, you know. And I, and I took that bet. And I must have won it, because in about five seconds, I was in an alcoholic coma. And I was in a coma for five days. And I was hospitalized for a long, long time. And it took a long time afterwards to recover, because I was totally neurologically screwed up. Couldn't walk, I couldn't talk. I mean, my brain was fried. And it took a long time to recover. I see people sh shake their heads, or nurses, and know what I'm talking about, I think. And, and I was a mess. And, you know, and... and during that time, uh, I had an easy detox. Hell, I didn't know I was detoxing. I was in a coma. And uh, after that, I, I, I was properly horrified. I had a grand sponsor that said, you know, sometimes alcohol will horrify you enough where you won't drink for a while. I was properly horrified. I didn't drink. I, of course, I didn't drink when I was in the hospital. I didn't drink when I got home. For that time, it was about a year and a half of my life gone just because of alcohol. I got another college scholarship to a little college in Kentucky. And I graduated in three years, going to night school, summer school, those kind of things, with a straight-A average. And I wasn't drinking. I absolutely wasn't drinking because I was properly horrified. Somewhere back here, my mind said, you don't drink well, Dick. You just don't drink very well. You shouldn't do it. And, and, and so I didn't drink all that time. Met my sweetheart. Got married. Uh, got, to work, got to work as a social worker uh, up in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, I, uh, it occurred to me after I was there about a year that most of my clients were making more money than me. So I got out of the social work business. Uh, got into the insurance business. I was an insurance adjuster. I went to night law school figuring if I... I get a law degree or some law, maybe I can go up in this business. Because I, I was practicing. I wasn't drinking. I wasn't drinking at this time. So I went to night law school, and, uh, and, and I was a half a year away from my law degree. And I started drinking again. 
I used to say, I don't know why I know why. I'm an alcoholic. I drank. And I drank, and I, do I have to tell you the rest of that story? I ain't a lawyer, you know. But, but I got enough law to, to, to become a claims manager. And I used to say I was never fired from a job. But I'll tell you, uh, uh, I blew a big case. I mean, I could have settled a case for almost nothing. The jury came in with a massive decision, and the planes were circling forth and vying to fire me. And uh, back then, if you had a college degree, you could get a job. I picked up the newspaper, and it said, Wanted, pharmaceutical salesman. I said, I bet I could sell drugs. <laughs> How many times do you get a guy that's an admitted drug dealer right here from the stage, you know? I just recently retired from a long career in pharmaceutical sales, but uh, but anyway, I, I went to work for this tiny little company. Uh, they were bought up by DuPont. Percodan was our big drug. <laughs> uh, they were bought up by DuPont, and uh, I'm working for DuPont. I invested in DuPont. Now, good logical thinking. You don't leave DuPont. You got to shoot the president to get fired from DuPont, you know. But but I saw a job in the paper that said wanted pharmaceutical salesman by a great big long German name company brand new to the United States, uh, and I left DuPont and went with this tiny little company. I was the 18th guy they hired in the United States. They were hiring people with experience to start the company. So I traveled all over and, you know, hired people, trained people, and, and, and watched this tiny little company grow. It wasn't a tiny company. It was an international giant, but I didn't know that. And this company grew and grew, and we have now like 25,000 people in the United States. And, uh, and see, I was at the right place at the right time. And I, and I became an executive with this company, making a lot of money, traveling all over the United States. And uh, but see, now my drinking was starting to... For many, many years, I practiced controlled drinking. Don't do that. You know, there's a line in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous that says it's the great obsession of every alcoholic to both be able to enjoy and control his drinking. If you're enjoying it, you're not controlling it. If you're controlling it, you're sure not enjoying it. <laughs> but see, I, I did that for all those years just so I could... Just so I could function. I was a functioning alcoholic if there is such a thing. Because I did well. I did very, very well in this business. But see, it got to the point they were starting to notice my drinking. Uh, I mean, I did. I was in Texas one time, and there was a guy. I was drunk and couldn't find my room. And a guy, uh, uh, he... He was a German guy, and he helped me in my room, and I told him I didn't like Germans, and, and he was an international officer for my company, you know. And the next day, I was on a plane back to Cincinnati, and I was down one more level, you know. And the following year, I was at a national salesman. By this time, I'm regional director. Uh, I'm, I'm going down the ladder. It was still a big job in my company, 150 people under me. And uh, I was regional director, and, and my region had just one region of the year. And it's a big deal. There's like 10 regions. There's 1,500 salespeople. And uh, I was out in Scottsdale, Arizona, in a national sales meeting. And uh, they gave us off that day. You know, what do you do in Scottsdale? You go golfing, and, you know, you go mountain climbing or, horse, you know, whatever you do at a resort. I just drank all day. You know, that's what I did best. And I had a cocktail party. And I dressed up, looked good, you know, drank a little bit more. And then they had a banquet honoring my region. And they had us up on this raised stage with the rest of the salespeople out in front of us, you know. And I was up there being honored, you know, looking good. But by this time, all that's left are these crafts of wine. You all been to these banquets? These damn cheap, I hate wine, especially cheap wine. That's all that's left, so I'm drinking that, you know, and it's, I'm slopping it down my white shirt. I got blotches down the front of my white shirt. And a guy, a guy gave a motivational talk at our sales meeting, and his name was Bill Glass. He played football for the Cleveland Browns, and he must have, he, he gave his talk, and, and during his talk, I fell sound asleep. And I'm up there snoring, and you know, just uh, you know, I'm being honored by my whole company. And uh, at the end of his talk, he must have gave a great talk because everybody got up to give him a standing ovation. Woke me up. And I got up, my legs were sound asleep, and, and, I, and I staggered, and I fell off the stage right at the feet of my vice president. They notice shit like that. <laughs> I want to tell you, 
the skid down the corporate ladder is a bunch quicker than the trudge up it. I got the emotion. I, I wound. I, it's amazing they didn't fire me. But you got to realize I built this company. I was one of the, the, the sort of the co-founders of this company, and, and, and they always they enabled me with what they did. They always found a place. You know, I had to go back through my corporate structure and make amends to all these fools that took a chance on me because they always found a job for me. But I wound up in Cincinnati and eventually as a hospital rep, and then I got demoted from that and wound up as a salesman where I started many many years before. And uh, progress, not perfection. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, that's what it was like. You know what happened? Somewhere along the line, my, my wife, for many, many years, started drinking. I couldn't see it. I absolutely couldn't see that she had a problem with it. See, I'm so self-centered. I am so into me that I couldn't see that my wife had a problem with alcohol. But see, and she was using my contacts, my doctor contacts, to get drugs. And she was taking everything. And she was a mess. But it got to the point even a dummy like me could see Carol probably shouldn't be drinking. I mean, she wrecked three cars, caught the kitchen on fire twice, uh, passed out in the IGA salad bar, you know, stuff like that. And I got on her now. Now I said, now, Carol, if you can't drink responsibly like me, <laughs> you shouldn't drink. And, uh, and, and I came home from work one day. It was May 1983. She, she was all, she found the morning. See, I didn't drink in the morning. Alcoholics drink in the morning. You know, I never got a DUI. I bought my way out of about 30 of them, but I never got any. You know, and, you know all these things that said, I am not an alcoholic. But my wife drank in the morning. And I came home at 3 o'clock one afternoon in May 1983, and she's really drunk. And she said she saw something on television, and she's going to go down to this care unit, which is about 30 miles away. It's a great idea, Carol. Go home. Get ready. And uh, I guess the best way to describe Carol was she was slow to get ready. Because she wanted to look good when she went to that care unit. She washed all her clothes, ironed all her clothes, you know, took a shower, did her hair about 30 times, you know, and wanted to look good, drank coffee all day. And uh, she, uh, she didn't get ready at 11 o'clock that night. And see, I had to have something to do waiting for her to get ready, so I drank a quart of bourbon. And uh, we got down that care unit, they had a dilemma on their hands. You know? <laughs> do you keep the drunk one or do you keep the sober one? <laughs> I'm all drunk up, she's, she's sober. But see, I'm a salesman. I walked, she stayed. And you know, I'll never get over the guilt associated with her when she was down there. She was down there, and I worked out a deal where I could uh, be with my wife every night for dinner. Paid him a couple bucks. I get down to dinner. Leave my kids at home. Now, see, their mommy's in the hospital. Their kids, my kids are scared to death because their mommy's in the hospital. And uh, here I am out drinking. I, you know, I, I'm out at this care unit, all drunk up. I'm going down there to Al-Anon. He's making fun of the Al-Anon people, you know, making fun of their book, you know, and, and going down there playing the big shot. And on the way home, I stop at my bar. And they'd say, man, what a bad deal to have a drunk for a wife. It certainly is. Give me a drink. Yeah, buy, buy a dick a drink because he's got a bad thing going. He's got a drunk for a wife. And, you know, I'd come staggering home like 3 o'clock in the morning. And my kids are hiding under the bed and in the closet. And they're scared to death because her mommy's in the hospital. <clears throat> Big old shot dad for the 30 days she was down there just drunk the whole time. Uh, tough to get over that guilt. I spoiled the hell out of them since then. And, uh, and they're special kids. Uh, they're special kids. I'll talk a little bit about them later. So she got out of there and couldn't stay sober. In and out of treatment centers and detoxes. And in November that year, uh, November 19th, uh, I was drunk like I always was. And uh, she said something to me, Dick, maybe, maybe if you'd quit drinking, maybe I'd have a prayer. And, uh, you know, I was hiding. We were hiding our whiskey from each other, you know, and she's watering mine down and I'm hiding hers. And I wasn't hiding. It. I didn't care that anybody knew I drank. I just didn't want to drink on my whiskey, you know. And, and it was just a job. I, mean, I, I found her bottle one time in a vacuum cleaner bag, you know. And, uh, and somebody said, how did you look there? There wasn't any other place to look. You know, that kind of crap. And, uh, I, and she says, maybe if you quit drinking, I'd have a chance. So I, uh, I must have agreed to quit drinking. I woke up the next morning. I looked at myself in the mirror. I weighed 245 pounds. 
I was, I had the reddest face you've ever seen, and I was heavy, and I had unkempt long hair, and I was a mess. I looked at myself in the mirror, and, and I, why do mirrors play such a part in alcoholic stories? I don't know they do. But I looked in that mirror, and I said, look at you. You are a fat slob, for crying out loud. What you need to do is go on a diet. And, 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 hey, get a haircut for crying out loud. And by this time, my clothes are a mess because I'm making a fraction of what I used to make because all these demotions, and I had bills. I had nothing but credit cards out there where I was paying interest, nothing but interest. And I mean, I was in bad financial straits. My clothes were looking a mess. And I said, what you need, go out and buy some new clothes. Really, it's not about this drinking thing. It's about not making enough money. You know, if you make enough money, everything's going to be okay. So any resolve about not drinking is fine. So I went downtown Cincinnati to a bargain basement of Shilatos, which is now Lazarus. And I'm down there looking for a cheap sport coat. A guy taps me on the shoulder. It's Tony Daly. Not that Tony Daly. Another Tony. I met Tony up in Columbus. That's kind of cool. Uh, Tony Daly was, uh, and I can break his anonymity because he just don't care. But Tony, <laughs> Tony was sober two years in Alcoholics Anonymous. Tony was in the same business I was in. Tony and I drank together. I'd known Tony for years. And coincidentally, Tony gave the lead at my wife's very first AA meeting. A lot of coincidences there. And he tapped me on the shoulder and asked how things were going. I started to tell him about my wife. He said, man, look at you. You look like crap and smell like a distillery. He says, why don't you do something about yourself? He talked me into going to Oak Street, which is a big clubhouse in Cincinnati, one of the oldest in the United States. He said I called all day long with every excuse in the book. You know, I had a council meeting. I wasn't on the council, but I had a council meeting. You know, anything that did not go there that night. But, but I showed up. And back then, upstairs were beginner's classes. Downstairs was a coffee bar. Behind it was the central office before they did all this division type thing. And anyway, the central office was right there at Oak Street. So I walked down them steps. And, you know, your ego can help you sometimes. Because Tony looked at me and said, hey, big fella, got any money on you? Oh, hell yeah, Tony, what do you need? He said, I don't need anything, but give Dick one of every book you got back there. I came out of there with a stack of AA stuff. I didn't want it. I wasn't that serious about this thing. You know, I just trying to, you know. So, but, you know, for the first six months I was in AA, I was getting sober at my wife. I was showing her, by God, I can do it. You can't, but I can do it. And all I did was go to AA meetings. I mean, I didn't work the steps. I had a sponsor, Tony. I never used him. Uh, you know, I didn't know what the steps were. I never read the book. Had them. They were still in the trunk of my car. And I just lived at Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, two and three meetings a day. So I'm going to tell you something. Alcoholics Anonymous meetings will keep you dry for six months. But I, I didn't say sober, did I? I, I said dry. I, you know, I never used drugs. Isn't that an amazing thing? I sold pharmaceuticals. Thank God. Years ago, we used to meet in parking lots and swap our drugs back and forth. I could have got quaaludes, anything by the thousands, you know. I just never used drugs. I was afraid of them. I knew what they'd do to you. But I drank a lot, obviously. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so uh, I came down them steps, and, uh, and I got those, those books, and, and I was just going to meetings. I mean, literally, I almost got fired because I wasn't working. I was going to meetings. And, uh, and I was miserable. I wanted to drink every minute I was awake. Absolutely wanted to drink every minute I was awake. And it seemed like I was awake most of the time. Because, see, I hadn't done anything to replace the alcohol. A lot of things happened. I was out of town, a little town called Moorhead, Kentucky. And I wanted to drink. I was six months dry. And I was standing at a Holiday Inn. And it was, this little town had just gone wet. In Kentucky, we got these wet and dry counties where they not allowed it. But just gone wet, that means they could serve whiskey. And when they do that, they surround hotels with liquor stores. And right across the street was this liquor store with a down sign. It said L-I-Q-U-O-R. 
and I looked at that thing, and Route 32 runs right in between his liquor store and the Holiday Inn I was staying there. Route 32 is a busy, busy highway. And I walked across, I'm going to drink. I said, what I'm going to do is I'll drink when I'm out of town, and nobody's going to know the difference. You know, I, and I'll play this AA crap when I'm in town, you know, and everything will be just fine. I didn't know what alcoholism was. Uh, so I walked across that street, and I stood in the middle of the intersection. It seemed like forever, with cars whizzing back and forth and back and forth. And, I, and I'm going to drink, uh, or should I go to a meeting, or should I drink, or should I go to a meeting? You know, there wasn't an AA meeting in that town that night. But there was an Al-Anon meeting. And I figured, what the hell, it might keep me dry. So I went to this Al-Anon meeting. And, and I, the topic was me. <laughs> you know, poor, pitiful me. God, I love that. You know. And then they're talking about me and, you know, saying, poor, pitiful me. And I'm just eating it up. But came to a lady named Billy. Man, she looked me right in the eye. And See, Billy been in Al-Anon like 20 years. And everybody in Billy's family was alcoholic. But Billy, most of them have since died of alcoholism. None of them were ever in AA. But Billy was healthy because she was going to Alamon. She looked me right in the eye and she said, don't they have step three in Alcoholics Anonymous? I didn't know what the hell she was talking about. <laughs> but I don't know about you. I don't like to be one up by anybody. So I went back to my car, got them books out of my trunk, and I read all night long. And I prayed that night. I hit my knees and I prayed and nothing's been the same since. I came back and my sponsor at the time, Tony, uh, and I said, Tony, I want to belong. He looked at me and he said, Dick, it's about time. He says, you know something? The person you used to be will drink again. The person you used to be will drink again. If you don't do something to change the way you were, you're going to drink again. He says, Alcoholics Anonymous is designed to change the way you, you were. If you do this thing, he says, you'll never have to drink again in your life. And, uh, and, and I guess I believe him, so I started working the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I work what I call a 3A program, program of acceptance, action, and attitude. i got to accept every day that I'm an alcoholic. I mean, everything about this thing, you know, got to go to these meetings, you know, I got to do all the things that, that, that need to be done to stay sober. And, you know, sometimes we never accept it. Uh, I think sometimes we don't accept it because we just don't surrender. We don't think we're alcoholic. We don't surrender to the depths of our soul that we're an alcoholic. And, you know, surrender is a big word. Surrender is a big word. Nobody likes to surrender anything and say, I'm helpless. But I remember when I was a kid, a guy up the street was a boxing promoter. His name was Altec now. And he used to do a little minor box, boxing promoter. Behind my house was a football field, Dayton High School football field. And he said, Dick, uh, and I was a nasty, rangy little kid. He said, you know, street fighter. He said, Dick, can you do me a favor? I got this little fellow that I'm training, you know, just starting out boxing. And could you spar a few rounds with him? And, oh, hell yeah, as long as I don't hurt him, you know. And uh, so they set the foot in the, they, in the football field. They set a real a regular regulation boxing deal, you know, with the whole deal. And got my gloves and everything. I invited all my friends to watch the slaughter, you know. And... Uh, <laughs> His name was Wayne Shackelford, uh, and he came out. He was a little guy. He aimed about here on me, a little bit muscular, but about this little, you know. And I hit him a good one. I was going to show him who was boss real quick, you know. And he went boom, 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 and I hit the canvas. I mean, just I couldn't believe anybody could hit that hard, that close, you know. And, and I got back up, and he went boom, boom, and he, I think five times. And the fifth time, I just laid there. I just laid on the ground. I said, I'm getting up. I surrender, man. And I'm going to tell you something. If Wayne Shackelford comes into this room right now I say Wayne <laughs> I surrender man he won the golden gloves the next year I got kind of conned into that deal but but uh so you know you got to surrender to this disease and, uh, you know people come to Alcoholics Anonymous and they say you know read the fifth chapter now start from the beginning the doctor's opinion describes alcoholism how are you going to surrender to something if you don't know who the enemy is you know so learn who your enemy is it's called alcoholism and, and then you can surrender uh, I uh accept it's a guy uh I was in my, it, it was a Russell Street, it was a little clubhouse across the river, it's closed now, but phone rang, my wife was sober at the time, and, and a guy called, his name was Jim, he was an American Indian, he was in a phone booth out in Florence, Kentucky, and we went out there, and he was a mess, he was 32 years old, he was an American Indian, and the most gorgeous, cold black hair I've ever seen, 
his wife had left him, and he'd been sober several years in Alcoholics Anonymous in Arizona, and uh, and he wound up cross-country drunk, and he's in his phone booth. You know, he was a mess. I got him into long-term treatment at the VA hospital, and uh, I became his sponsor, and I'd go visit him, bring him cigarettes and those kind of things. He was there a few months, and it was summertime. The phone rang one night. It wasn't night. It was like 3 o'clock in the morning. And he said, you'll never guess where I'm at. And I said, Jim, I don't know where you are, but I know what you are. It's obvious he was drunk. I said, if you're serious about this thing, you, you, you call me in the morning, and I hung the phone up. He bled to death in that phone booth. Uh, he had a hemorrhage of the esophagus. Uh, he just didn't accept that he was an alcoholic. I beat myself up over that kid's death for a long time, but I realized that I guess it was his time, you know. He's an alcoholic. Uh, got to accept this thing. you got to get in action. Action's the magic word in Alcoholics Anonymous. Clancy will say that a lot, I'm sure, before the weekend's over. But, you know, action means getting a home group. My home group's the big A group in Alexandria, Kentucky. You know, action means getting a sponsor. My sponsor, uh, been Tony Daly, but recently I got another guy named Keith Lewis. Uh, a lot of reasons uh, that uh, I met with Keith in, uh, on a spiritual basis, and I, I talk to him at least two, three times a week and try to see him once a month. He's a special, special man, and uh, he sends his, his regards to you, Sharon. And uh, so I believe in sponsorship. And it means working the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I told you I was a pharmaceutical salesman. As part of my career when I was sober, uh, uh, one of my jobs was to, to design protocols for, uh, for uh, studies. And I'd go out and get patients to sign up for studies. Well, we came out with a drug. It was in, it was in the final stages of the study, and we need 300 patients to... It was for AIDS. It, it was for AIDS, a very deadly disease. And we needed 300 patients to complete this study. And uh, they sent me around the country, but they sent me out to the uh, Scripps Institute uh, out in... La Jolla, California, has a lot of cancer patients, but they also got a lot of AIDS patients out there. And my deal was to go explain that you got to be very honest when you're doing this. This drug is a nasty drug. Uh, it, it's now out on the market, but it, it has a lot of side effects. All these AIDS drugs do. It can kill you. It can screw your blood up and kill you all by itself. You know, it's got a lot of side effects. You can lose your hair. I mean, it's got a lot of side effects. So you got to explain all the downside of these things. And you also got to say, you know, it's not going to save your life. It might enhance your quality of life for a few years. It might give you a few more years, you know, in combination with other drugs. You know, it really doesn't sound like a great deal. But I went out there and talked to these. There were 318 patients. I talked to them, and I needed 300 for this study, and, and, and all but three. All but three wanted that little chance to have a little better quality of life, you know, and despite all the problems with this drug. And all but three wanted to be part of this study. And we come in here with every bit of a disease, worse disease than, than, than that, called alcoholism. And you say, all you got to do is work these 12 steps. What do we say? i got to think about that. Ain't that something? Ain't that something? Uh, so attitude, if I wasn't happy here, why would I be here? God, I believe in it. And I'm happy, joyous, and free. I'm the happiest person I know. And I, and I, I really am. And, uh, and, and I demand to be that way. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love everything about it. I, you know, every meeting we start, we start with the serenity prayer. How many of us know what serenity really means? I'm not sure I do, but I heard a story one time that helps me a lot. About an artist. And he's talking to his, and a rich man. And the rich man's talking to his advisor one day. And he said, you know, he says, I'm not happy. He said, I heard this word serenity bannered out. Maybe if I had some of that, you know, maybe, maybe I could be happy. And his, his, his advisor said, he was a very wise man. He said, maybe you could get yourself an, an artist to paint you a concept of serenity. Then you'll know. He said, in fact, you know, give him a lot of money, $100,000 or a couple hundred thousand. Give him six months to do it. In fact, get yourself two renditions of serenity. Then you'll really have a good idea. So he did that. And after six months, the paintings came back. Well, the first painting was a pond. You know, not a ripple wind and a swan floating across the blue sky, puffy cloud, a dove going by, you know. And guys, I feel the peace coming off that canvas. He says, in fact, I don't even need to see that other painting. You know, I, I just, you know, I know what it is now. And, and his advisor said, look, the guy gave a half a year of his life. You paid him for it. Out of courtesy, look at the thing. So he looked at that painting. 
In fact, it was a waterfall. I mean, the water was crashing down. It was tearing the dirt away from the stream, you know, and, and, and the white caps in the thing. And, 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 and the millionaire said, that, you know, you've been by a waterfall. They're noisy. And the millionaire said, I, that's not serenity. That's chaos. That's noise. It's hurting my ears. Get it out of here. And he said, would you look at the painting a little closer, the artist said. You know, he did. And, and on the bank next to the waterfall was a tree. And in that tree was a nest. And in that nest was a little mother robin feeding her young, despite that noise of the waterfall next to it. Now, isn't that the deal we need out there in the real world, you know? People don't always do what I want them to do out there. They hardly ever do what I want them to do out there. And, and that story meant a lot to me, you know, it meant a lot to me. Alcoholics Anonymous is a simple, simple program. Uh, I, I hate when people try to complicate this thing. Uh, our co-founder one time, Dr. Bob, was asking, he was a very simple man, Bill was very complicated, I, you know, thank God for that combination of two guys. But, but Dr. Bob was asked one time, if you had to describe Alcoholics Anonymous in its simplest terms, what would they be? He said, love and service. He says about loving your God and your fellow man and be willing to serve. And that's the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, Dr. Bob used to say, trust God, clean house, help others. Very simple. You can describe Alcoholics Anonymous in such simple terms. I had a hard time trusting God. I said, man, he ain't never going to forgive me. You know, oh, the crap I did, you know, the bishop thing, and, you know, just running around, just being a, kind of a bad guy all my life. You know, God, and I remember my sponsor said, you arrogant SOB, who are you to think that God won't forgive you? And I heard a... Chuck Chamberlain used to say, we're all God's kids. We're all in this deal together. We ought to help one another. And I thought about that. I got three kids. You know, there's nothing those kids will ever do where I won't love them. Nothing. So I bet you God still loves me. A little story I like to tell is about a little girl in kindergarten drawing a painting. The teacher said, what are you doing there, Mary? She said, I'm drawing a painting of God. She said, Mary, you can't do that because nobody knows what God looks like. In her innocence, she said they will when I'm done. <laughs> uh, uh, but trust God clean house get the garbage out of your life uh, we had an old guy named Jolly Roll he'd say raise the red flag boys and get the garbage out of your life he meant work the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous I mean I did my first three steps and I did my fourth step with my sponsor uh, or I did my by myself and then I sat with my sponsor and did my fifth step and as he heard it we went over there and all the people that I owed amends to we wrote down on the right you know and I owed a bunch of amends a lot of amends but the one particular man he said you got to go to Helen See, Helen, I didn't want to. Helen was my mother-in-law. Helen blamed me for my wife's alcoholism. Helen hated me. I hated Helen. Pretty simple. I wasn't going to go to her. But after a lot of prodding, I went to Helen, and and, uh, and, and I made my amends. After the end of the day, she threw me out of her house. She says, don't ever set foot in my house again. Came back to Tony. I said, I'm done with the old girl. You know, she didn't accept my amends. And he said, no. He said, now you got to act like you meant those amends. I said, Tony, she's never going to see you. Yeah, she will. She'll see you. Families are like that. And I saw Helen. It took a long time, but I was nice to Helen. did a lot of things for Helen. The gradual, gradual healing took place. It took a long time. She was in Florida. I found out she had cancer. You know, she called me, and she had to come back for a colostomy. She called me to pick her up at the airport. Rather than one of her own kids, because she wanted to talk. That much healing had taken place. She had that colostomy. About a year later, she had some problems with that colostomy. and had another one put in. She came up from the hospital. She called me crying. She said, Dick, can you come right down? I got down there, and I said, Helen, what's wrong? She said, look, Dick, my... My bag's full. And God, it was pus and stitches and clamps. And you know what a colostomy bag is. And it was full of feces. And she says, I'm afraid it's going to hurt too much to change it. She says, would you change that for me? She says, you're the most gentle person I know in this world. And I know you've never hurt me. Now, isn't that love at its most intimate level? Never would have happened had I not made those amends. Never would have happened. And I can't tell you how much later in my life that she helped me. She died a few years after that. But, but I'll finish up that story in a little bit. Um, help others. Emerson said so many things best, but he said the most beautiful compensation in life is that no man can help another 
without ultimately helping himself. Isn't that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous? I believe in sponsorship. I've had a sponsor since day one. Recently, I added Keith. Uh, so I've got two sponsors. Keith's kind of my spiritual advisor, and uh, uh, and I sponsor a lot of guys. I, I believe that a lot of the nitpicking problems of Alcoholics Anonymous can be handled by good sponsorship. You know, this drug addict thing and all this crap can be handled by just good sponsorship. When I'm in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, I'm an alcoholic, period. I'm not a hand. I'm an alcoholic, and I believe in that. Uh, I believe in sponsorship. I, I honestly do. Um, what's it like today? You know, about 13 years ago, my whole life fell apart. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. I'm sober about seven, eight years, and it just seemed like if it could go wrong, it went wrong. My, I guess I'll start. I was in a car wreck. I was hit head-on by a drunk. It was a 17th DUI, and I was really screwed up bad. I mean, I've had... I think 13 surgeries now as a result of that wreck. Several back surgeries, spine surgeries, two total knee. I had a lot of, a lot of physical problems as a result of that. And, and I was in pain trying to work as best I could. And uh, I had a daughter. She was married to a white beaten jerk. You know, I remember he told me one time, he said, Alcoholics Anonymous ain't worth a crap. It don't work. I said, help. Total little asshole. <laughs> anyway, uh, as a result of that marriage, I had a baby. And the baby was born with cerebral palsy. We'll never walk. Her name's Eden. And uh, at the same period of time, my boy, uh, he was a teenager. He was drinking, and he dove into a pool with no water and broke his neck in three places. And he was looking at paralysis. And this was, again, in a period of three months. At the same period of time, my wife had been sober five years in Alcoholics Anonymous and started drinking again. And I was devastated. I was out of town. I was in a Holiday Inn. I don't know what it is about Holiday Inns. And I was taking a shower. And, uh, and I was cussing God. Much like Job in the Bible, I was saying, hey, God, man, I'm doing my part. You know, I, I'm, I ain't much, but I'm doing better than I ever did before. And, but look at all this stuff. And I named my daughter, and I named my grandbaby, and I named my wife, and, you know, I named my problems with all my physical problems. And, and I said, I, I don't like it, God. I don't like it at all. And I went out to brush my hair. A mirror fogged up and outside the, the door, you know, the, from the shower. And it said across the mirror, I love you. My dirty mind said, whoo-hoo, somebody had a hell of a night here, you know. But, you know, the second line fogged up. It said, I love you, God. Now, see, I know some maid, some little kid did that on the mirror, and I know some maid didn't do her job. But I know it was there for me to read when I needed to read it. It was there for me to see when I needed to see it. had a lot of surgeries. The very first back surgery, I, I died in recovery. Uh, I lost my blood pressure, and I'm laying there on my belly, wide awake, listening. And my blood pressure's gone. I'm shaking apart and say he's dying. Something's wrong. He's allergic to something. We don't know what's wrong. And I'm laying there, and it seemed like forever, thinking I'm going to die, and I wasn't afraid. What a gift not to be afraid to die. I don't know if that happened tonight, but at that particular time and place, I was not afraid to die. And I was a gift of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I had a lot of surgeries. Uh, I'll talk about a little bit more of those later, but I don't know I won't. I'll just talk real quickly. In the last year, I've had four major surgeries. I've had two spines and two knees. So if you see me gimping around, I can only stand for about an hour, and that's the thing. My knees tighten up. But uh, And I've just got some serious back problems right now that I'm in kind of pain all the time. But Keith helped me a lot with that. He said, just pray about it, you know. Just pray about it and offer it up, you know. And I'm learning to accept that. You know, there's probably nothing more they can do for that. I take a, a, a thing called Mobic, which is like a Celebrex, you know, once a day, and that's about it. But uh, anyway, uh, my my daughter uh, got rid of that white beater jerk. Uh, she got uh, another jerk, but see, that's another story. At least she ain't a white beater, you know. Uh, a lot of you know uh, Eden, my grandbaby. Eden, uh, Eden is special. Eden learned. Uh, my daughter wasn't a good mother. The state took Eden away from my daughter. I fought it. I fought this deal in court and lost. They took Eden away and put her in foster care. But I kept fighting, and I got Eden. 
I had, eaten, I had eaten for about 14 months, and I, I think she went to more AA meetings than I had 14 months, and some members do, you know. <laughs> I'd take her around with me and go here and there. And she got to the point she could fly on her little walker, you know. She could fly on a walker, never learned to walk. But, but see, her little hips went out. And they had to take her back to Children's Hospital and break her hips and break her legs and put her in a body cast. And, and, and then she came home, and she healed. She had to go back to the hospital, and she had to learn to walk all over again on her walker and that's how she's walking today on her walker but but while she was in the hospital I'd go visit her she called me Poppy she said Poppy can I have a dollar yeah eating what do you need it for you know coke soft drink Poppy can I have three bucks yeah eating what do you you know coke Poppy can I have five Eden how much money can you possibly spend on soft drinks and candy she's got a little wheelchair she's all Poppy she's I got plenty of money but none of them do she's running around that little wheelchair you know giving other kids soft drinks and candy you know where does that kind of love come from you know I don't know that's a God thing isn't it She's a special, special little girl, uh, and she's back with her mother now. And uh, her mother's uh, seems to be doing the right thing right now, and, and I hope that all works out. Uh, uh, what what happened was uh, my daughter remarried, and she had two other kids, and Eden was just kind of odd girl left out. Uh, my boy uh, had eight hours of neurosurgery. Three of the guys I sponsor sat through that surgery with me, and he's not he's not not paralyzed. Matter of fact, he's a plumber by trade. He just remodeled my home, remodeled his own home, and he. Uh, Recently, I don't remember last year, the guy that fell out of Nippert Stadium and, and, and fractured his skull, and that was my boy, you know. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, he flipped the four-wheeler over him, all drunk up. But he don't have a problem, you know. But, uh, but, but see, he knows where he knows where this deal is. He knows what's going on. Uh, my wife never stopped drinking. She uh, she got very, 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 very sick. Uh, she was in and out of every treatment center. Uh, she had me in debt about $60,000 because she ran out of insurance. And, and she started hitting the free ones, you know, the detoxes. And uh, and uh, she was in a process. Uh, we just had just separated. I went to a conference because she got very, very violent. Uh, she was drinking anything that had alcohol in it, rubbing alcohol, you know, name it, hairspray, anything. And she was just crazy. I mean, she was very violent, throwing knives. And we had to separate. Uh, you know, it was just a matter of physical necessity and financial necessity. And right after that, I was at a conference, and Merck was there. And... Uh, and, I, and Murph saw me crying, and she came up with wrong, and we talked for about an hour. And Murph helped me through that day, um, and uh, it, it was—I'll uh, never forget that. I'll never forget that. Uh, anyway, uh, she kept drinking. Uh, my daughter checked on her one day, uh, and she was dead on the couch. She actually drank herself to death. She was 52 years old. I'm gonna tell you something. She was a wonderful woman. She was a great mother to my kids. Uh, uh, great housekeeper, all the things, a great wife, a much better person than I'll ever be a man. I don't know why she got this, didn't get this, and I did. I don't have a clue. I absolutely don't have a clue. But I'm going to tell you something. I hear people come in and out of here, and they'll say, maybe this time I'll get it. Maybe you better get it. God, stay here. Stay here. This is where it's at. You know, you might not get that other chance. She didn't. She didn't. She got in that downward spiral called alcoholism and just flat out died, you know. But, you know, life goes on. Uh, I'm still going to Al-Anon. I went to Al-Anon all through this deal. And I'm still going to Al-Anon. And, uh, and a little girl had a nice country accent. And she liked my legs. And one thing led to another. And her name is Marlene. And we'll be married about eight years. I think some of her tapes are over there. You know? <laughs> but Marlene's a special lady. She's become a mother to my kids and a grandmother to my five grandkids. And Marlene is just a special, special lady. And anybody that knows her knows that. She'll be here a little later. She had a couple Al-Anon commitments that she had to do today. But uh, did I tell you something? I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, I love everything about it. I'm going to close with a little story. You know what? I forgot one thing. My daughter, was, she'll be here later. Uh, uh, her, her name's Christy. She was one, never never a problem in my life. 
I always forget about her, you know. I just forget about her. And she joined my company about five years ago, and, uh, and, and, and as a result of uh, the problems I've had, I had to retire last year. So I retired a successful drug dealer. <laughs> uh, but, but she got promoted to my job uh, when I retired, and it was a special thing. And we talk shop and do all the neat things that, that, that you do, and she's just a special lady. She bought a home right around the corner from me, and, uh, and I dearly love Christy. Uh, I'm going to close with a story I always tell when I close. It's, a, it's an updated version of The Prodigal Son. I heard it, and I liked it, and I, and I kind of changed it around the way I liked it. You all know the story of The Prodigal Son. This is a modern-day version. The young fellow went to his old man. He said, I want my money now, Dad. His dad had a lot of money. His mother was dead. He was an only child. He got his money, and he went off, and he was one of us. He blew the money in no time. He was drunk, and, and, but he found recovery along the way after, you know, after he blew all his money. And he was sober about a year. When he was sober a year, his sponsor gave him a coin, and his sponsor gave him a little plaque with the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous on it. He treasured that. But shortly after that, he found out he had AIDS or one of these diseases we die of, and he was dying. His sponsor said, uh, Charlie, you got to go back to your old man. Uh, you know, you got to go back and, you know, you just be with your old man. And Indeed, and, and he's, he's, he's never going to forgive me. Yeah, we'll go back and see. And, you know, after a lot of prodding, he went back and he went up this big tree-lined driveway. The old man lived in a mansion. And there were Rolls Royces and Bentleys out in the driveway. And everybody raved about this you know, this house. And it was beautiful, you know. And, and the fellow just trudged out. And here come the old man running down, just like the prodigal son. My son, you're back. He says, you're back. Take your possessions. Put them anywhere you want. He's a daddy. He said, I don't have any possessions. You see, I'm an alcoholic and I lost everything. He said, all I got is this, this thing I got when I was when I was uh, sober, uh, you know, uh, a year. And it's the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. The old man ran in and took a Rembrandt off the fireplace and put it up there. That's where it hung. And the fellow died a few months later. And the old man was grief-stricken. And the plaque hung up there. And it wasn't much longer. The old man died. He died. They had an auction auction off the property, and everybody came because they wanted to deal in the Rembrandts and all the Picassos and all the Bentleys and Rolls Royces and antiques that were in that house. And the auctioneer started off the auction, and he says, "What am I bid for? Uh, whatever this is." And nobody said a word. But the young fellow sponsor, just out of curiosity, showed up, and he says, well, "I'll give you five dollars for it." He said, "Sold." He said, "In fact, the auction's over. It's the terms of the will. Whoever gets the twelve steps gets it all." I'm Dick Hedger. I'm an alcoholic. Mm. 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 Mm.